Hello and welcome to The Spectator Podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast and it's been yet another crazy week of twists and turns in the Brexit saga. Theresa May has been back in Brussels trying to beg the EU leaders for a short extension for Brexit. So as James Forsyth writes in our cover story this week, has Theresa May humiliated the UK by handing over control to Brussels? Also on the podcast, as the UK relies more and more on doctors trained abroad, why do we have a serious problem finding doctors at home? And finally, at the end, I speak to an Archer's superfan. As James Forsyth writes in this week's cover story, Theresa May has lost control of Brexit and her party. Her Brexit missteps, he says, will have long-lasting implications for the Conservative Party. To make sense of it all, Katie Balls, our deputy political editor, talked to James Forsyth, our political editor, and former Universities Minister Sam Jimar, who resigned his post in protest at Maysdale. James, in your cover piece in this week's Spectator, you write that the Tories' current humiliation could be as cataclysmic as Labour's in 1976. What do you mean by that? Well, it's hard to think of a time when the country was more humiliated than it is being today, because the future of this country isn't being decided in Westminster or in Whitehall, but in Brussels and the other 27 capitals of the EU. The problem is that the request for an extension, this is not a negotiation, this is something that is entirely up to the EU whether it is granted or not. And so, as with the IMF bailout, the UK government for its functioning is dependent on some external actor saying yes or no. Sam, you've been very outspoken about how you don't think you could support the Prime Minister's deal, how you think that we could be heading back towards a second referendum. Are you one of these MPs who thinks an extension is the right thing now? I think the way I look at an extension is we are making a decision now that should last us for the next 50 years. We were in the EU for 45 years. And so rather than put ourselves under pressure, if we need time... You're better off taking the time to make the right decision now than to make the wrong decision in a sense. We all now agree that Article 50 was triggered too early because um, we didn't have a plan. And the same pressures that led us to trigger Article 50 too early, i.e. we wanted to deliver on Brexit, and so we had to do it, is the same pressure that is on us now to carry on, even though with the Prime Minister's deal, we will have precisely the problem that James has outlined in the future negotiations, one of 20, each of the 27 countries can veto whatever we want. Do you think we're getting any closer, Sam, to coming up with a plan? Because it does feel like we have had many Brexit debates in the House of Commons at this point and we haven't really reached a new consensus. And there is a concern in some quarters that an extension is just going to have much more of the same. No, we, it, it is. I mean, the, the sad, the sad situation is that at the eleventh hour, we are still talking about the different Brexit options. This is a debate that we should have had two years ago, but we can't get away from the fact that um, what Downing Street chose to do, a key part of its strategy, was to put pressure on all the other Brexit options and ensure that the only option on the table at all times was the Prime Minister's deal, and especially as the Prime Minister refused to acknowledge at any point during the process that her deal was dead. There was no opportunity to move on to discuss anything else. And um, we've got to discuss this because there are different views of how to deliver Brexit. And but more importantly, there isn't a majority for the prime minister's deal. We can't get away from that. And there isn't a majority for no deal. We can't get away from that either. So we need to create the time and the space 
to actually find where what there is a majority for. Now, James, the Prime Minister has said that she wants to seek only a short extension to the end of June and she wants to use that time to pass her deal. So far, the sounds from Brussels, from Donald Tusk, is that something they will consider, but it's likely to have a condition attached, such as the fact she needs to actually manage to pass her deal. And it seems once again that we're now talking about a choice which seems to be along the lines of Theresa May's deal or no deal. What are the current politics and what is the decision that is actually facing MPs next week? Theresa May's problem throughout the Brexit process, I mean, the, one of the parallels with 1976 is you, the, you have a cabinet that consistently refuses to face up to hard choices. I mean, you've seen this cabinet do that in the same way that the Labour cabinet in 76 did. I think that Theresa May is, keeps refusing to work out who she wants to squeeze. The government message at the moment is trying to say to people like Sam, well, You've got to vote for the deal because you can't be sure it won't be no deal. What if the French veto any extension of Article 50 if the deal doesn't pass? So you've got to vote for the deal. While at the same time, they're trying to tell the ERG, who are quite keen on no deal, if you don't vote for this deal, Brexit's only going to get softer because Parliament's going to take control. And the problem is this isn't working because the, the two sides are hearing the opposite messages. So what has happened since yesterday is that ERG MPs are, you know, in Marc Francois' inimitable style, he goes, nine days to freedom if we vote down Theresa May's deal. And on the other side, you've got Labour MPs like Liz Kendall, and I think Sam here would, would obviously a Tory MP, but would fit into the same thing, who think that if they vote down Theresa May's deal, it's not going to be no deal because the EU will just give a longer extension. And this is the problem for Downing Street, which is they've got to pick a side that they want to squeeze and squeeze it and they're not doing so. They're and still trying to do this double strategy. I, I, I agree with James that um, doing the double strategy doesn't work, but even worse, what it's done is, is erode a trust because speaking from two sides of your mouth, as it were, means neither side really trusts you. But there is a problem, which is if the government doesn't have the ERG and the DUP on board, then it's relying on Labour MPs. Now, if you've got momentum breathing down your neck, and Jeremy Corbyn has whipped you not to vote with the government, you have to be a pretty brave Labour MP to rescue a Conservative Prime Minister who is in trouble. So that, I think, uh, complicates the issue. And I think it comes down to the fact that Theresa May lost the Conservatives, the majority, and it's not still not clear which Brexit option across the House of Commons has a majority. And but, but it is, I think, worth noting that if you are talking about Brexit options as opposed to the option of no Brexit... Theresa May's deal leaves open every single Brexit option. There is nothing in the political declaration that rules out Norway Plus. There is nothing in the political declaration that rules out a customs union. There is nothing in the political declaration that rules out a Canada-style trade deal, certainly not for Great Britain. And so people have to be slightly realistic here about this, which is, you know, if you don't want to vote for the withdrawal agreement because you want a softer Brexit, that is actually not a valid reason, because the withdrawal agreement does not stop a soft Brexit. I think it's well. I've I've said that you know we'll see where we are, and if none of the options have a majority, let's invite the people back into the process to have a final say. Now, while I see what James is saying that all the options require the withdrawal agreement, there is kind of a serious problem in kind of not knowing where you're going. Now, what James is saying is sort of squeeze the Labour lot, but if I'm on the Labour side and I think that you know. Boris Johnson is going to be a Conservative Prime Minister. What you're asking me is vote for Theresa May's Brexit and get Boris's Brexit, which may not be what I want. So, and I think that is the point of the political declaration. At one level, it should be a big enough life raft for everyone. But at another level, you're asking everyone to 
jump into a void. And I think that is what makes people nervous. Now, touching on those mixed messages from 10 Downing Street, even if you don't buy the different spins on what happens if you vote down this deal, there is a case that if you're going planning to go, as it seems you are, into the same voting lobby next week as... Owen Patterson as you know Jacob Rees-Mogg if he chooses to reject the deal again why is it that you think by doing that you're going to get closer to no Brexit or softer form of Brexit when they are convinced that by doing that they get to hard Brexit and no deal Brexit well my starting position and the reason why I resigned was I didn't want to vote for Theresa May's deal and since then it's the same deal and I had no reason to change my mind on that basis and I am totally comfortable with Parliament then having an extension and going through the different options. We'll see what comes out of that. And then if we have to have a referendum at the end of it, we do. But I'm, I'm very kind of open-minded on that. I mean, I think my analysis of what's wrong with Theresa May's deal is probably similar, certainly similar to Jacob Rees-Mogg's analysis of what's wrong with Theresa May's deal. Where we differ is what our prescription is in terms of what you do about it. And my view is we're going to end up falling so far short of what people were promised originally, that we should actually ask them or let them know that this is what Brexit now means. James, do you think there's a risk that there is a miscalculation going on here and we could actually accidentally fall into no-deal Brexit next Friday? I think that that, the risk of accidental no-deal has definitely increased. I think there is a chance the House of Commons votes down Theresa May's deal. It thinks it's doing something very clever with, you know, Cooper, Bowles, Letwin, and thinks it's saying what it wants. And then because this requires unanimity among the EU27, one of the big countries in the EU27 simply says, no, I'm not prepared to back this. And because we're leaving, that happens. Now, I, I think that no deal, I still think that no deal will not happen on the grounds that the EU27 are not ready for it. And if they were to force no deal by rejecting a British request for an extension, then all of then what would follow from no deal would politically and, and morally be on their heads. And I think that with the EU don't want to avoid being blamed. So I personally don't think that will happen. But you cannot be certain that any decision that requires 27 countries to agree is necessarily going to go the way that you expect. But that is the reality of life under Theresa May's deal, if it gets through. <laughs> you know, everything we want will be at a price of what they want. And I think there is also something here where we've had months talking about Theresa May's deal as um, conferring vassal state status on the UK. And I think it is true. But now talking everyone down from that position is incredibly difficult because you, when you've said that the referendum was about reclaiming sovereignty, it's much harder for the same people to turn around and say, OK, now we think vassal state status is, is fine. Just finally to end on, we know that Theresa May next week is going to try and put this deal to a third and perhaps final vote. And she has given a speech inside number 10 where she basically made an appeal to the nation and blamed MPs, I think probably including people like yourself, Sam, for not getting behind her deal and in a way for therefore not listening to the result of the referendum result. How do you respond to that? I think the speech was a failure of leadership and a failure of judgment on Theresa May's part. A failure of leadership because someone needs to explain to the country what is actually going on in Parliament. And 
people are bewildered. But there is a reason why MPs are tabling amendments left, right and centre, because the government wouldn't even grant them time for debates. You know, government is incredibly powerful, I've noticed, when it comes to controlling the order paper and what happens on the floor of the House of Commons. I think it's a failure of judgment because this is an incredibly stressful but also divisive time for all MPs. Families are divided, the country is divided, we're all getting hate mail from different sides. And to then say what she said about blaming MPs for what is an inevitable consequence of a an issue that is so divisive, I think it's incredibly dangerous. James, in your piece, you talk about how we are at a crisis point here. Do you think the position the UK now finds itself in is a failure of parliament as a collective or is it a failure of leadership? I think it is both. The one thing I will say about this current situation is there is plenty of blame to go around. Uh, and <laughs> I, I think you, Theresa May cannot escape a large chunk of that blame because some of the most obvious mistakes in this process from triggering Article 50 before she knew what kind of deal she wanted to negotiate and calling an election which lost her a majority and has landed her with this hung parliament can't be avoided. But I also think there is some truth in the point that Parliament is much better at saying what it doesn't want than what it does want. And Parliament has voted on on all sorts of Brexit options. It's voted on a customs union, it's voted on EEA, it's voted on a second referendum. And it's obviously voted twice on Theresa May's deal. It hasn't voted in a positive manner for any of those options. It's not like Theresa May has held Parliament hostage and not allowed them to vote on these things. We have seen amendments to the meaningful vote. We have seen amendments to other bits of legislation. None of them have delivered yet a majority for anything. My starting position is if you really want to deliver Brexit and you don't have a majority, you can't deliver it on party political tram lines. So to have amendments and then whip against them and then turn around and say, well, Parliament doesn't support it, it's not but, but really. Sam, you should answer that. You resigned from the government so that you could vote the way that you wanted to vote. Other people could do the same. But what I'm saying is you can't say that Parliament is not voting for anything when what, what you're doing is you're essentially saying to someone, if you want to vote for something else, you've got to resign. I think that's part of the problem. Yes, but, but you, chose I did. Put, you, I chose did. Put, you chose to say that this issue is We so should have more free votes. I yeah, think it would be but, more constructive to have had free votes on some of these issues to ascertain where a majority can lie. I mean, I, yes, I resigned because I wanted to, to, to speak out. But I think the approach he's taken on this issue is like taking a wrecking ball to our constitution where, you know, they're just trying to incite the public to hate MPs. I think that is not very helpful. I, I think what, the other thing you could say is that listening to the speech last night, it would have made more sense if the speech had ended with a call for a general election. Because then it would have been, you voted in the referendum to leave, you now need to return a leave parliament to deliver this result. Given that there are only four or five days before a vote comes back, having a pop at MPs in that manner, I don't quite see that you're going to get the public response to that, that is going to change the arithmetic in parliament in time, just from a purely political... I mean, forget whether it is... It's a counterproductive strategy, right? It's a weird way of telling people that they should support you. Though, of course, we shouldn't rule out a general election, as all options, you could say, are still on the table. Thank you, Sam, and thank you, James. Hello, I'm Isabel Hardman. Hello, I'm James Forsyth. And I'm Katie Balls, and you can join us all every day for Coffee House Shots, our daily politics podcast. Just search on the iTunes store or an alternative phone provider, and why not leave us a review if you like it? Next up, 
Myron Thomas writes in this week's Spectator that the UK has a serious problem training our doctors, leading the NHS to rely on doctors coming from abroad. But why are large numbers of junior doctors dropping out or travelling abroad to work? Is it because the job is too pressurised or do they just want to work in sunnier climes? I'm now joined by Marion, a former surgeon, and Saffron Cordry, Deputy CEO of NHS Providers, the agency that oversees NHS services. So Marion, you say in your piece that Britain's failing to train our own doctors and instead importing them. How exactly has this come to be the case? It's been a long-standing problem. It's been going on for decades. It's just got worse. And I knew before I started this research that in 2016, 44% of new graduates, sorry, new registrants to the GMC graduated abroad. And then I, I decided to ask the GMC again. They took a week to get the answer. So they obviously didn't know the answer. They had to crunch their numbers to find it. But to my amazement, that had gone up to 47% in 2017 and 54%, 53% in 2018. That's a staggering increase in numbers. So when you look at the percentages themselves, the number of people coming from the European Union stayed approximately the same at about 2,000 for each of the three years I was looking at. But the number of international medical graduates, and meaning people who've come to the UK from outside the European Union, had raised enormously from something like 3,500 to almost 6,000, which is a 75% increase. That's a huge increase. Now, the reason for that is that in June last year, the government removed the cap for Tier 2 visas. Uh, Tier 2 visas were for experts or skilled people coming into the country. And the reason they did it was to increase specialist people coming into the health service, not necessarily doctors, but nurses and all other manners of healthcare people. So it, so we've got that huge increase in just the six months of this change with the Tier 2 visa. My prediction is in, in the whole of 2019, certainly within 2020, we will get up to 60% of new registrants to the GMC coming from abroad. Saffron, is this something that you've also noticed in your line of work? So we represent NHS trusts who obviously are major employers of doctors across the country. And I think trust chairs and chief executives tell us that workforce is their number one concern. So workforce shortages are their number one concern. And we are seeing a rise in the number of doctors coming from overseas. However, we wouldn't necessarily see this as a problem. We've got around... 100,000 vacancies across the NHS, a proportion of which are doctors. And, you know, it's absolutely critical that we are filling the workforce gaps that we have. And I think it's really important that we make sure that we don't have gaps in our rotors and that we make sure that we are able to provide the service on the front line that we need to provide. I think it's also worth saying that we don't necessarily see this as a problem across the NHS. I think there is a role for both training our own domestic workforce, and that's absolutely critical that we do that. And it's been, as Merrin said, a decades, if not generations old challenge to make sure that we have the right number of doctors and other healthcare professionals in place. But we also need to be aware of the fact that we have in the NHS always relied on staff from overseas. In its 70 years history, we have always relied on that diversity of a workforce. So although it is growing, I wouldn't necessarily see that as a huge challenge because 
demand is going through the roof and the number of healthcare workers, doctors, nurses and other professionals that we need is also going through the roof. I mean, do you think that Britain should be training up more British doctors? I think that we need to see both an increase in the training of domestic workforce, absolutely fundamental, including doctors. I think we also need to be doing a lot more, not just about how we recruit and train doctors, but also how we retain them as well, because it's one thing to train a a cohort of doctors. And it's another thing to make it a really good, fulfilling and manageable job on the front line so that we retain them as well. So I, I, I wouldn't see it just as looking at the issue of how many we need to train. It's also about how many we need to retain. Marion, you talk in your piece about junior doctors in particular. I mean, what do you think are the reasons why they are choosing to leave the profession that they've dedicated okay. so much time to already? Can I just say, first of all, uh, what, what I've just heard Saffron say, I found terribly depressing. If NHS providers are not bothered by this information, that to me is very, very depressing. So why are they leaving? I've got letters from junior doctors, for example, who describe themselves going on duty, sometimes being pushed in at the deep end, doing six, looking after 60 to 100 patients by themselves at night, usually with a locum, with registrar at home, and feeling absolutely terrified because they've just come from a medical school where most things were book-learnt with some clinical experience, and suddenly they're totally into the clinical experience. They're having to take life-and-death decisions for the first time in their lives, and they're not properly supervised. Now, that was not at all what happened in my day, which is a long time ago, I agree. But uh, in, in my day, when we qualified, you had never been left alone. There was always a registrar in the hospital looking after you, and you could easily get access to them, talk to them about any problems that you had, and have their reassurance. And obviously, you gained in confidence very quickly if you were supervised and supported. Saffron, do you think that's right, that junior doctors aren't really being supported quite as much as they should be? So I'll just come back on on the point that Mary made earlier. It's not that we aren't bothered by this information. What I'm saying is that it's about having a mixed supply of workforce. So obviously, as I said, we do want to see more doctors trained here. But we also recognise that there's a diversity in our workforce and a diversity in the supply of that workforce. In terms of junior doctors, I think it's absolutely the case that we are seeing junior doctors leaving at a certain point in their training. We often know that we hear stories of them going off to New Zealand and Australia. We're also hearing stories of after a while them coming back. So that's a big, big thing to remember. And I think also the tide, I hope, is starting to turn on some of this. So we have been through a very difficult period for junior doctors. I think they've been through a very demoralising period. They've had a change in the nature of their training, a change in the nature of their rotations. And I think it's been very destabilising. But what we have seen over the last couple of years is a real recognition that we need to give junior doctors that sense of belonging that that they need, that sense of leadership from within organisations, that sense of being properly looked after. And some of this is quite basic stuff. But how, how, how would you do that? So that's about things like making sure that they can get home safely at night after they've worked a shift. It's making sure that they are provided with the basic provisions that you need when you're working long hours. So access to hot food, access to regular breaks, access to snacks and things at like the that, moment do they not do they not have that they, they do have that now but there was a big issue around 
the overall morale of different cohorts of junior doctors because they didn't feel adequately valued and adequately looked after by their organisations. I think the tide is turning on that. And I think it's fair to say that trust leaders and profession leaders have put a lot of time and energy into making sure that's the case. I was just going to say that we're talking to Saffron with some NHS providers and they represent trusts. What I would like to ask Saffron having expressed that opinion, I mean, when did you last sit down and talk to a junior hospital doctor or a group of junior hospital doctors? I mean, have you actually spoken to them personally? Absolutely, yes. So did a piece of work with um, junior doctors just last year on some high impact actions that trust could take in order to improve improve the working lives of junior doctors precisely because of this issue. So yes, do talk to junior doctors, do meet them, do understand it. I go out and visit trusts on a very regular basis and I am meeting junior doctors in my day-to-day work. So I think absolutely the case that I understand the pressures. We we hear what's being said, not just directly through junior doctors, but through trust leaders and through the Royal so, Colleges. So why do you think so, they're leaving then? I think why, why do you think the F2s are not going on I to think, speciality training? I think there are a number of issues and it's about how they perceive their working lives. It's about how they perceive their options. We know across the NHS that there is a really big push for people to want to work their working lives differently. And we know that we need to structure the NHS differently so that we can achieve that. So it's it's not just about people leaving because they are not satisfied with their role or or not fit for their role. It's also about wanting to pursue different options before they then come back to their roles as doctors. And so I don't have empirical research on this, but I know from my conversations up and down. So we know that uh, a total of 20% are either not working at all or have left the country. We know that. Yes, but that doesn't mean that they've left practice, they've left the country. And what we are seeing is considerable numbers who leave the country to go and work in places like New Zealand and Australia and Canada, then coming back. Are Are we getting doctors from New Zealand and Australia coming to work here? Not necessarily that swap. What I'm saying is that people go away and work in another country and then they do come back to this country. So we're not losing them forever. I don't think there are any figures on the people coming back, quite honestly. It's something we all hope. But it's it's unknown. What I do know is I was talking to someone in Gosford the other day. Gosford is um, one of our problems in this country is accident and emergency doctors. And we know that one of the groups of people that are really living big time are accident and emergency consultants and trainees. I was talking to um, someone in Gosford this week, several conversations, in fact, in preparation for this article, which something I didn't actually put in in the end. But they've got 32 consultants there in Gosford. It's a big unit. Trauma unit, 40 miles north of Sydney, 26 of the consultants came from UK. On the day that I spoke to the person I spoke to, he had just spent the whole whole day doing 22 interviews, interviews with 22 F2s from this country who wanted to come to Gosford to work in accident emergency. So I think there is a much bigger problem than we think. It is, of course, difficult to document all these things, but what I see is a huge problem that's not being addressed. I don't disagree that there's a problem. So I think that we need to do what we can to keep doctors in training, continuing their training and, and you know, taking substantive roles in our NHS. I would suggest, however, that there are wider factors, and this isn't just about the medical profession. There are wider factors about the mobility of young people. There are wider factors about people working in different locations, not just in this country. So I think we have to bear that in mind as well. And I think if you look at a number of professions, you would probably see 
data that demonstrated that that they were mobile, that they were thinking about working in different countries and not just in this country. So I think we have to perhaps moderate your your rightful concern around the numbers, but this isn't about an exodus. This is about people exercising their right to work in different countries. But they are leaving. They are leaving. I'm, I'm not but they are leaving, that they're and leaving. And there's no evidence that they're necessarily coming back. And what we've got to look at is the reasons why they're leaving. We've talked about dissatisfaction amongst F2s, F1 and F2s being thrown at the deep end, for example. But, you know, there are huge problems thereafter. And, for example, one of the big problems that I know is bothering lots of junior doctors now is the pension changes that they are threatened with. Completely agree. And I would say that the pension issues are very substantial. I would say that that's more of a concern for us actually at the other end of the age spectrum in terms of the workforce. I'm more concerned about retaining very experienced consultants who are now leaving because of the pension challenges that they face. So that's where we really need to focus and that's where the Treasury really needs to step up to the plate and say they understand that there are problems that that need to be actually addressed here because we're losing consultants that we've not only trained but we've also had working in our hospitals for a lifetime who are now deciding to step out. Just finally can I ask you both whether you I mean do you still think that being a doctor for junior doctors is still a kind of rewarding and prestigious career or is it just a grinding exhausting job that and you can kind of understand why people don't want to be doing it? Okay the last two paragraphs of my article I think are very important. I know it's highly controversial, but I think my worry at the moment is that a lot of people are going into medicine and they don't actually know what they're letting themselves in for. Both genders, they are doing A-level, they're good at sciences, and then they're wondering what they want to do. They think, I don't fancy wearing a hard hat and this sort of thing. And then they suddenly realise that they can do medicine and they go into it without really knowing what it's all about. And it's a bit of a shock for them at the end, which is why I think as it happens in the States and mostly in Australia now, we should have graduate entry into medical school. If someone has a graduate entry, they've had three years to go to university, possibly study an allied subject to medical sciences. They can have, they should be doing lots of internships in the NHS. And so when they apply into medical school, they know exactly what they're letting themselves in for. And I think that is an essential change that we need to make. I think that the... The life of a junior doctor has always been a hard grind and a slog. I've not been a junior doctor, so I can't speak from experience, but it is perceived wisdom that it is a hard grind and a slog. I think we need to do whatever we can to make it easier, and that's absolutely incumbent on everyone who's involved in in training doctors. I also think we need to think about how we recruit not not simply for academic ability, but for aptitude and, you know, to recruit on the basis of values and and broader skills as well. What we haven't discussed is the morality luring in doctors from abroad, from countries that are much poorer than ours. And they know perfectly well that if they can actually get into this country and take this pushover exam plab, that they can get as security and a salary and a pension and a standard of work which is better than they can ever achieve in their own country and it's very interesting when I presented this or when I asked this question of Simon Stevens last Monday in the Spectator event that was the question that seemed to bother him and he agreed you know that it is totally immoral for us to poach all these doctors that's what we're doing we are poaching people who 
know perfectly well that if he can, can get into the country, they'll be far better off than they were in their own country. And that, I think, is not fair. Is it all going the I same? I mean, are the Australians, by that logic, also yes, poaching our absolutely. doctors? <laughs> you know, the thing is, it's a slightly different poach because the people we are poaching have got a really miserable life if they can't get out of India, Pakistan, wherever they're coming from. But the, but the, the guys going to Australia probably could do quite well in this country, but they've got a, even a better lifestyle choice. Uh, beach life and a much better work choice by the way they work they work slightly lower hours it's much better organized and the reason that A&E doctors go there is because the A&E doctors actually have hospital they have care they have wards they look after their own patients it's not like the A&E in this country which is basically a triage center and within four hours you've got to get that patient out of the accident emergency department so the actual quality of life the work is so much better in Australia but I agree with you it is a poach poach thank you Saffron and Marion hello I'm Sam Leith literary editor of the spectator and I present the weekly books podcast at which you'll hear lively discussions from the best and most interesting critics and writers and authors out there from Charlotte Rampling to Daniel Dennett all the way past to Michael Morpurgo I very much hope you'll give us a try just search for spectator books on the iTunes store And finally, what does this tune make you feel? In this week's issue, Justin Morozzi, the travel writer and journalist, says that he has an enduring love and hatred of the archers. He writes about how he can't stand most of the characters but loves to listen anyway. And he's not alone. The long-lasting radio drama about the everyday lives of those living in the fictional village of Ambridge has a huge following of dedicated fans. And I'm joined by one now, Nicola Headlam, a certified Archers fan and co-author of an upcoming book about the women in the Archers. So Nicola, you're somewhat of an Archers expert. You've got this new book out called Gender, Sex and Gossip in Ambridge, Women in the Archers. What exactly is it that you love about the programme and how did you first start listening to it? Well, you don't really choose Archers' obsession, it chooses you. My parents listened when I was little and... One of the main characters, quite a sort of naughty tearaway called Kate, was born the day before me. And the first time I'd consciously remember kind of engaging with it, they were organising Kate's fourth birthday party on the radio. And I was organising, you know, the house was about to be full of guests and stuff. And I was thinking, oh. And so I made the immediate connection between there was somebody on the radio that was the same age as me, who was, you know, a little girl. And so was I. And then Kate turned out to be the most fascinating character who went off to be a new age traveller and is into drugs and tried to kill herself and had multiple ch- had child at Glastonbury, had children in more than one continent with definitely more than one father. So it made me feel rather smug that actually I was a bit boring, but, you know, hashtag winning compared to Kate <laughs> or Aldridge. And how often do you listen to it? I mean, do you listen every day or do you catch up on a Sunday? So, yeah, I wouldn't say I listen very often, only twice a day and once on Sundays. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, it's not like a, it's not like a, an addiction or anything. So the most fun about it, though, is... And I, yeah, I've had times where I have it. I mean, God, I wasn't like, you know, as a student, kind of come round mine and listen to the orchard. It sort of fell away, as everyone does, kind of, when you're at university. But... The thing that really makes it really fun now is that there's this huge online community and when I say huge I don't think that the casual listener would fully understand that we have a thing called the hashtag tweet along which in real time gets up to 10,000 tweets a week 
and it's just a lot of obsessives talking about every detail and making loads of in-jokes and putting up gifs and just really funny and actually don't don't tell uh, Kerry Davis but I actually enjoy that at least as much as the program if not more because we're a really anarchic bunch actually quite spectatorish I guess quite naughty and with good vocabulary and a kind of life of listening to the archers so it makes me howl with laughter so it's sort of a bit like a back channel that's going on at the same time as the program so like you know in like the rocky horror picture show there's like a script and then there's like a subversive script that everyone that's into it knows yeah the tweet along is extremely fun <laughs> i mean in this week's issue justin rotsey's written about the show and he accuses most of the characters really of being kind of bland and caricatures i mean i assume you disagree but do you think he has a point do you think some of the characters are slightly caricatured so when i read the piece which i must say was excellent he's just outing himself as a true fan because nobody hates those characters as much as the true fans the real oh god they sound like some kind of you know sort of purist but the closer you get the more you hate them so temperamentally I don't feel hatred for them but I certainly pity them because I I see them as slightly erstwhile slightly bonkers relatives that kind of you just wish would behave better because when you know all the clans and all the interconnections and all the rest of it yeah I mean they are fairly horrible human beings most of the time but yeah he's just saying that he's a fan because as I say nobody hates them as much as the fans and do you think it offers a realistic portrayal of British life it's a really good question so we've sort of veered as academic archers in and out of the territory of people pretending well I mean the archers is real it's a docudrama so you know it's a reality tv for nerds I think it says in the article (laughs) or old people or something so, you know, let's get that straight. There isn't The Archers is real, there is no cast. The Archers anarchists are very clear on this point. So if there are any Archers anarchists listening, uh, turn off now. <laughs> there are script writers, it's a BBC programme. So as well as the kind of social construction of reality that we all participate in, you know, in life, there's a second social construction, which is the presentation of the Archers. Now, the writers are very, very careful about veering between reflecting or directing or being, you know, having relationships with reality. They want truthiness rather than truth, I guess, or veracity. But at the end of the day, it is still a drama. So I spoke to the outgoing editor for the book, in fact, Alison Hindell, who is a real amazing kind of feminist woman of the archers. And she said it's like... It's like having friends, but none of the boring bits. So, like, I mean, one thing that actually, you know, we think the programme needs to address urgently is what everybody in the Archers is doing between 7.02 and 7.14 every day because, you know, they should be listening to the Archers <laughs> like everybody else. And are there any characters that you just can't stand? Oh, yeah. I mean, most of them at any given time. I mean, that's the fun of it, right? Like, being up close and personal to a lot of nice people. Like, what's the fun in that? But I would say from, so we have a network of research fellows that support academic archers. We've got 2,000 in our Facebook group. And as I say, the tweet along is full of people and you get to know that who really hates whom. So we have a very good friend that's been with us from the beginning called Abby. She has a vitriolic hatred for Jill Archer, who is sometimes seen as quite a neutral matriarch, although in the article Justin says that she's wet or something. He calls her a moralising mother hen. 
Moral argument. Abby, Abby, Abby will agree. agree yeah. That. So Abby tweets as much ado about Ambridge because she, her particular angle has always been to find Shakespearean resonances in the Archers. So there was the the big storyline with the coercive control, Rob Titchener being. Even I heard of that, and I, I didn't listen to the Archers. <laughs> there we are. So she was comparing him with Othello as a sort of flawed. A deeply flawed character. He was a rather wonderful baddie. So, yes, she's vitriolic about Jill. She thinks that she is moralising and very difficult. It's interesting because I think the biggest thing, there are several circles of hell to being an Archer's fan, and when you're in the deepest kind of thing, you sort of understand the constraints under which these scriptwriters operate. So things like they can't have more than 37 characters over a week, and if you have one character five days, that's five of your 37. So quite often, in order to move the plot forward, quite incongruous people will say things. They also have topical inserts, which again on the hashtag we all look out for like like crazy. So quite often, if they're near to the edge of their kind of characters they're allowed to use, someone will be like, well, what a day to call an election. <laughs> it's like <laughs> topical insert, because it's all obviously recorded slightly in advance. So the same when you know more about that sort of mechanics, because I would say the first circle of hell, and this is where everybody comes into the sort of ACA fan, the Archers fandom and all this, is, well, I'm a social worker, they're doing social workers terribly, it's a disaster, like rubbish, no one would speak like that. So that's what everyone does. Like, So we started because we had backgrounds in urban planning and governance and, and urban development. We met on Twitter, Cara and I, saying, well, if you were going to do a consultation about a road, you wouldn't do it like that. Which is, you know, that's the kind of point of entry for everybody. When actually, once you get into it, they're incredibly meticulous about constructing. If they, There was a storyline about making kefir on one of the farms. They went to a company called the Crazy Goat or the Laughing Goat, and they really got into the kind of mechanics of this sort of quite obscure thing. And they really try for veracity. But, of course, you know, that sort of research process just then sort of merges into, again, this is a script-led, it's a drama, essentially, so they're not going to say, gosh, to make a fear, you take the grains from the goats. <laughs> you know, it's not kind of like that. Although it can be didactic, and that's what's intriguing, is that it has its roots in this kind of Ministry of Agriculture propaganda kind of model in the post-war period. So, so yeah, we... Um, what was the question? I've completely forgotten. <laughs> I was going to ask, just finally, I mean, for people like myself, I may occasionally listen to it if I put on the radio and it's on. I don't really know what's going on. I sort of enjoy it, but I don't really understand what, what, who the characters are. What's your advice for people who want to get into it? I mean, is there a kind of dramatis personae that you can look at? Or how do you, how do people get into it for the first well, time? Well, in all seriousness, I would uh, strongly suggest the purchasing of the academic archers books as they will definitely enhance your enjoyment of the process but since we've always been pretty inclusive from the beginning we have loads of stuff on youtube loads of talks from our conferences and i would back myself wouldn't i say my youtube about the ways in which the main characters are networked together by birth and marriage demonstrates a social network analysis of 75 people and that's not a bad place to start that was nicola hadlam and that's it for this week if you've enjoyed the podcast, do subscribe, rate and review. I know we ask this every week, but it gives us a big boost. So please do let us know what you think about the podcast. And if you pick up this week's issue, you can read all of the pieces discussed, as well as more from Paul Wood, Stephen Daisley and Ben Schott, who writes about John Burko's rhetoric. And we've got a fantastic offer. 12 issues for £12 plus a free £20 John Lewis voucher if you go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. 